0: Mike, yeah, go. So my friend Abby, uh, who's in the hospital, uh, she's a first uh friend of ours, who's uh, been out for uh, over 20 years. She has a, a tear in her uh, intestine. Abby uh, Risteen? Yes, yes. What'd you ask? And, uh, Chuck is familiar with the person. Yeah, Abby yes. Risteen. She's having a tough time. Yes. So. Ab- uh, I, I think she's. Uh, about to be sitting home, actually, she's doing better, but uh, still lose great It's a tear in her. Uh, some, some sort of, uh, I don't know what to call it. Uh, she was bleeding in Germany, but uh, I think they had the pain Anybody else? Yeah, Mary. Uh, my son is getting married Thursday. Up this a year ago, we got engaged. So he's getting married this Thursday. This Thursday. What's his name? Christopher. Christopher. She's Hannah. And his, her name is Hannah. Hannah. And um, she's a Presbyterian and refused to be married in a church. So. This. Well, I'd be surprised if after she's been around her mother-in-law for a while. <coughs> oh no, she don't like. Well, that's because she doesn't know you. When she does. I'm not invited to the wedding. Oh, Oh, God. God. Boy. But I still want to pray for her. You've got a handful with your kids. I know. By the way, so do we. So do we. So. Yeah, when? Uh, August 5th is your due date. Oh, it's coming up. Wow. Yeah. Is she close by? She's in Austin. Austin. So you're going to be traveling to babysit? (laughs) Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I intended to bring the reading from last week. um, um, But I just, we just... (laughs) We've had our grandchildren for a week and it was a little bit overwhelming and we just sent them off today and sorry, it's been a scattered day. I hope I'm halfway coherent tonight. Just, um, But the reading um, was that reading in which um, Christ was saying so clearly, um, how do you put it? Um, anybody who loves their father or mother more than me, daughter, children, you know. So that includes everything, job, life, whatever. Anybody who loves those things more than me, he will have nothing to do with. And this is, a net, I mean, this is not a part of my prayer, but if you'll forgive me, it's an, <laughs> it's an editorial comment into the prayer. I think one of the ways in which we dodge Christ is by loving our parents and our children and our job more than him. It's much easier to love our children than it is Christ. We can have our way with our children. To love Christ asks a lot of us. So he said, Unless um, unless you love me more than them. Anybody who loves their father and mother more, you know, he went down the list. And he ended by saying, Unless you fall to the ground, unless you pick up your cross, unless you follow me. Pretty stark words. So and you and you know this. Um, because of some of the comments we've made together. You certainly can't miss it from the reading we've been doing because the reading takes us there always. Almost every one of the works we read is critical of our social world in some way. There's something wrong with the world. So my prayer tonight is um, strengthen us, please. Um, In everything we're doing, um, help us to find a strength in each other in the work we're doing here in whatever we're learning, let it not be to make us smart. God forbid. God forbid. Um, That's not going to get us to heaven. Um, Help us to find a strength in what we're reading so that we can grow in self-knowledge and find a courage to do those things that are hard, particularly because of our experiences of, of other people and all the works that we've been reading. So let, it be, let these readings be a source of courage for us, a deepening of our faith, um, a stronger commitment to put our lives away. Um, if we love you the way we should, we will love our spouses and our children better, even if it makes it harder for all of us. So please, um, when we go to you, when, when the people went to you for healing, they were healed because their faith was perfect. Make perfect our faith. Help us to go to you um, to be healed, um, to put our sins away, to more perfectly, more fully do your will. Um, I ask for um, a special prayer for Mary. Um, Yeah, Keep her um, safe. Let the pregnancy go well. Um, Let her um, forthcoming grandmother know a peace in her heart. um, Be with Abby, um, help her to heal, help her recovery. um, And ask a special prayer for um, Christopher and Hannah on their wedding day. Mary has such a good heart. if she doesn't go to the wedding, if she's not invited, let that absence um, be the, s- the source of a greater presence of you and a grace in her life. Um, um, let her know that as a matter of her faith, to not have any question about that so that she can be um, um, have good wishes for her son, and, um, and the step that he's about to take, Christopher with Hannah. Um, be with Mary, um, strengthen her in her faith, be with her son and um, Hannah as they begin this journey together. I uh, offer a special prayer too for um, Chuck and Lori's um, daughter. I can't, have they named the child yet? Not yet. I uh, Yeah. Um, be with um, Lori on her travels see her safely there and back again and keep their daughter safe protect her from any harm let the pregnancy go well and Suzanne and I ask special prayers for our middle son a real struggle right now in his life um, and Adrian be with Adrian um, console her let the ordeal she's going through strengthen her and her faith. Let it be so for Christopher as well. We offer these prayers um, in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, Doc, you want to send out a um, a, um, a, a snack you send treat? Out a sign-up sheet for snacks. Listen, before we start. Um, I'm a little bit reluctant to say this Um, you know that six months ago nine months ago we started to have dinners with some of you and and we've not followed through with everybody and so um, I'm gonna get a hold of some of you to see if we can't get some groups together to um, to have some dinners, because you know that I've wanted to. two or three, when two or three gather together, I really believe that. Um, number one. Number two, I've been looking over the reading list to go ahead, and I can say, with some certainty, this will be it for me. Um, I will give you the reading list. Um, mm-hmm. The modern works that we read, they're, they're great works. we we'll do Flannery O'Connor and Eliot. We'll do some short stories by Hemingway and Finer O'Connor and some other people. They'll be good. They're short. Um, Hemingway is going to be interesting. And we'll do Hemingway's Old Man of the Sea, which is the work that um, he got the Nobel Prize for. Faulkner said of Hemingway when he when he got the Nobel Prize for that work, he said, because they were the two greatest writers of their time, the most um, innovative, the most unique, in, in, uh, in radically different ways but Faulkner said of Hemingway he finally discovered God and Hemingway had already converted to Catholicism um, it was an awful life I, I'll, we'll, I'll touch on it when we get there but anyway we'll read some short stories by O'Connor and um, Eudora Welty and Hemingway and Faulkner and, um, but the major works will be Flanner O'Connor's The Violent Beard Away, Elliot's Murder in the Cathedral and Faulkner's Go Down Moses and that's going to be it. Um, I'm <laughs> you proud like you cannot not be aware. This is going to be a sad moment for me. I can remember when we started this together, whatever it was, three or four years ago now, and I can remember reaching up in the back blackboard and feeling so strong. And though although some dizziness was beginning, I, when I looked up in the backboard, I I, I don't I didn't want to give any signal. I didn't want to let on. But there was a little bit of dizziness. But after the hospitalization, you know, a couple of years ago, I've just watched myself weaken. So I, you know, I, I would have not said this three years ago. Just it's not in my character. But this is going to be it for me. So you had better read well, you guys. Sorry. Um, we don't read well. We all don't. Anyway, this is going to be it. So, um, I've given you the reading list, but I'll send it out again. This will finish our work on modernity. I am so proud, grateful, and glad that we've done this together. To have begun this work and done the apologetics, and then to have that as a background going into reading, you know, that perspective, sort of amazing. Um, But anyway, you know that my own position on this is, we're not supposed to read to be smart. When we see something, we're supposed to live it. So I hope everybody's real on that, because otherwise what we're doing makes no sense. So however difficult these books are, we're being given them and whatever wisdom they offered, and whatever in the way of love, to make us more capable of taking Christ to the world. So if you thought you came here just to read, <laughs> um Okay, so let's start. Um, I'm going to read Shakespeare's sonnet and then I want to do a very brief review of Nefarious. I just want to raise some questions because a number of us have seen it and I don't know if everybody has but I want to offer some thoughts just for anybody who's already seen it or anybody who who hasn't. But first Shakespeare. I mentioned this poem before. I'm going to read this and I'm going to do something that you know, according to practice, I do not do because I don't want to spend time on the poems, but I'm going to spend a few minutes on this one. This is a wait, so this is one of a large sonnet cycle. Um, Petrarch, the Italian, had done a great sonnet cycle to um, his beloved, Laura. And so many of the Englishmen were copying Italian models. They did it with Dante and Petrarch and others. And um, it's just what a number of them did because the source of Renaissance literature was Italy, the Italian poets, and all that was happening in Italy. So Shakespeare took that idea of a, of a sonnet cycle, but what he did with it was turn it into a sonnet cycle dealing with him and a dark-haired lady whom he loves, and a young, a young boy who has all the potential, presumably, of becoming a good poet. And you watch what's happening between this older woman who who has a power over this kid and any hints of manipulation or using and so it's a love triangle okay but it goes everywhere um, um, in the poems he deals with death and poetry and life and this young kid in this poem he's he's talking about a group of people who've been given gifts but who don't waste them the way most people waste their gifts Okay? Because he's got the young boy on his mind, he's got the woman who's wasting hers, and he's got himself. Okay? So, now read this carefully because I'm going to come back with a question. This is a freshman one 8 question, so be on your toes here, okay? Glad to see you again, both of you. Hi Cheryl, hi Paul. Shakespeare's son at ninety-four. I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to read it after we're done. Okay? They that have the power to hurt, and will do none. Oh, hold on. Um, All of you should have this because it was included in the packet last year. Can you can you get one? Um, I'm sorry, last not last year, last meeting. Thank you. So um, Chuck, do you need one? Here. Everybody should have one. It's in that packet we had. Cheryl Paul, do you guys have Doc, can you give if I don't know if Cheryl and Paul here. Is everybody okay? Ninety-four. Sonnet sonnet ninety-four. Yeah, you can Google it, it'll come right up. Okay. And see in our poetry list. Um, oh, yeah. Thank you. you all know that all these are online. Everything's available online on, on our site. There's a um, site devoted to St. Francis and um, C. so they're all there. Shakespeare Sonnet 94. They that have the power to hurt and will do none but do not do the thing they most do show, who moving others are themselves as stone, unmoved, cold, and to temptation slow. They rightly do inherit heaven's graces and husband nature's riches from expense. They are the lords and owners of their faces, others but stewards of their excellence. The summer flower is to the summer sweet, but to itself it only live and die, But if that flower with base infection meet, the basest weed outbraves his dignity. For sweetest things turn sourest by their deeds. Lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds." He's describing of, um, so let me take a stanza by You know, or sorry, quatrain quatrain by quatrain. It's it's an Italian, um, or Shakespearean sonnet. It's got three quatrains and then a couplet. So A, B, A, B, none, stone, show, blow, graces, faces, expense, right? A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, it just goes through like that. In the first quatrain, he's saying, they that have the power to hurt will do none, that do not do the thing they most do, show. So if they've got, look, you can be a great basketball player. You can be a great pilot, a great teacher. You can be a great um, cellist, pianist. Um, they do not do, they do not show the things, um, they do s- mostly show who moving others are themselves as stone. So even though they move others in what they do, be a, a musician, let's say, okay, or a lawyer, it doesn't matter, a teacher. Um, even though they are moving others, they themselves are stone. They don't let the fact that they influence people um, um, tempt them to feel things they shouldn't. Flattery, ego, vanity, vainglory, pride, right? They don't do that. They've got their mind on what they're doing, they have no concern to be flattered. Look at most of the people in the world. Most of the people who have gifts usually have large egos because they know they have a power over other people. So when they move other people, they themselves are, to look at all the Hollywood stars, you know, or rock stars in their audiences who go nuts with. Unmoved, cold, and to temptation, slow. These, this group, they rightly do inherit heaven's graces. They receive their, wait, by the way, whenever we have natural gifts, because some of us are born with natural, you can be a gifted basketball player, a gifted musician, did you do anything to create those gifts for yourself did you give them to yourself whatever natural gifts we have we didn't get from ourselves they were given to us some people are more gifted at some things and so some women are extreme so here's I mean a perfect case some women are extremely beautiful did they do anything to give themselves that beauty how many of them are free from vanity Women knew that kind of beauty that beauty is one of the most extraordinary powers in the world. How many women are free of a vanity with that beauty, feeling that they didn't deserve it? It's not from them. They rightly do inherit heaven's graces and husband's nature riches from expense. They don't waste their gifts. They husband them. They um, right. They take care of them. They are the lords and owners of their faces, others but stewards of their excellence. The people who look up to them, they're the ones who take care of them. Okay? The summer flower is to the summer sweet, though to itself it only live it die. But if that flower, so the summer is unconscious, or the flower is unconscious of itself, it's just there. Its beauty is present to the world, right? Does the flower jump out of its roots and go around putting a mirror in front of it? It's just there. So in one sense, it's an image of what we should be doing with our gifts. We should just be giving them, period. The summer's flower is to the summer sweet, though to itself it only live and die. But if that flower with base infection meet, the basest weed outbraves his dignity. A weed will be better than a flower who goes bad. Is everybody following? Take a rich piece of meat, a very rich piece of meat and take a really poor piece of meat and stick them out in the sun. Which one is going to rot worst? Right? The richest one is going to be full of maggots because it's got more in it. Is everybody following? But if that flower with base infection meet, the basest weed outbraves his dignity. For sweetest things turn sourest by their deeds. Lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. Is everybody clear? Let me. I'm going to. I'm going to go back to something. But I just. Is everybody clear in the poem? He's speaking to those few. They that. Ha, he's speaking to a small group of people. They that have the power to hurt and will do none. And he. He elaborates on that. Those who have this power but will do none. Okay. They won't abuse it. They won't take advantage of. It. I want to go to a question. If everybody's okay, if if everybody, uh, Michael, go ahead. The first stanza makes me wonder uh, why why does he why does he speak about the power to hurt the first line? Because if you have power over somebody, the likelihood is you'll use that person. Or let me put it differently: lots of people who have power look at celebrities, or rock stars, or artists. When they get a power over somebody, there's a good chance they will abuse that. They'll use that person for themselves because they have that power. You can be a good lawyer and marry a woman. You can be a wife, a woman and be a good lawyer and marry a man and use him. Doesn't That's a virtue? Huh? That's a virtue then. to have the power to hurt and not do. Not do. Yes. yes. Yes, absolutely. By the way, this is all about a virtue here's my question okay now for those of you who think that grammar is not worth studying you better be ready to duck on this one for those of you who don't think that grammar is worth taking seriously let me read the um, first two lines again and then raise a question I love this poem they that have the power to hurt and will do none that do not do the thing they must do show so whatever it is they don't abuse it they don't okay What's the difference between that and and a but? Why didn't he say, they that have the power to hurt, but will do none? But expresses contrarity, right? You all know that. And expresses um, complementarity, um, congruity, right? He didn't, most people, lots of people would write that sentence and say, they that have the power to hurt, but will do none. Right? We're talking about a simple conjunction. He did not use but. If he had used but, how would that have changed the meaning? What's the meaning with and? That's a simple conjunction. Um, I feel like with uh, if he were to say but, it would imply that power will inherently make somebody want to hurt others. Whereas when he's using and, he's talking about how they that have power to hurt would be actively choosing to hurt others if they were to hurt somebody. Can you turn that around? Instead of... Because this is about people who will not hurt. Right, so those that don't hurt are choosing of their own will not to cause pain. Good. You wanna can you say that again and flesh it out? Or are you okay? That said it is everybody okay? Or go ahead, Mary go ahead Yeah. Mary, go ahead. I was looking at it. they have both those qualities. They have the qualities of the power of the gift, and they also have no intention, because it's not in their heart or their soul, to ever use it to hurt anyone. Okay, let me come at this... How to put this question... This is going too blankly. Can you make a distinction between the Catholic, as we've been talking about it, the Catholic sensibility and a Protestant sensibility on the basis of this and and but? They that have the power to hurt and will do none, they that have the power to, to say they that have the power to hurt but will do none says that person has to overcome something. He has to resist something not to hurt. That's the contrariety. Everybody's got to be clear in this. If he'd said they that have the power to hurt but will do none, that person has to overcome something not to hurt. For him to say they that have the power to hurt and will do none means it's natural. There's an inherent goodness he's acting on. There's an inherent virtue and he will do it. He will do the good. To say but implies he would have had to overcome something so but would imply maybe an inherent evil you have to overcome something to say and means he can draw on a natural virtue he doesn't have to struggle it's in him to want to do good so they rightly do they rightly do inherit heavens get graces and husband natures they use them well unmoved cold to temptation slow they're not moved to temptations they're cold They move others but themselves a stone. Whatever they do their focus on is on that not using people, not wanting to get control over them, not using his power for other ends. Let's say you're an artist and all these people flock to you because they want to read your novels. And you've got a groupie following. How many novelists will be virtuous enough to not given to that and use these groupies or, you know, go where we will. Is everybody following? Is everybody? Connie, you have a question? It's interesting. It's a little thing, but or and. And one of my reasons for doing this is because it'll come up with Dostoevsky. Um, I hope it'll become really clear in a minute. You know that up until the time of Shakespeare, we lived in a virtually Christian Catholic world. The Reformation takes place just a century before Shakespeare and the world turns topsy-turvis. Remember when we did All's Well That Ends Well, Helena, or um, what's his name, the clown, the fool, said the age of miracles is past, the age of miracles is gone, we're in a scientific world and the doctors could not cure the king. It took a miracle because the Renaissance marks that point at which the Christian Middle Ages are behind us and we enter a new world. It's our world. Now the authority behind everything are the sciences. Copernicus showed that um, Ptolemaic view was wrong and the church had to be wrong because it was based on the Ptolemaic model. And the Reformation where Martin Luther and Calvin say Catholic Church is corrupt. That's the beginning of the modern world as we come to see it. You all know that now. So Shakespeare's writing at a time when he's looking back to a world in which natural virtue was possible. What happens with the Reformation? Is any natural virtue possible after the Reformation? No. Why? Because the major Reformation divines say nature is corrupt. It's depraved, Milton said, all corrupt. Reasons corrupt, the souls corrupt. It's only by grace that we're saved. Because nature is evil, inherently evil. Okay? I'm not putting that too strongly. It's a fundamental, it's a fundamental difference. Calvin even went so far as to say we have no free will. Both of them said we have no free will. Calvin said, we not only don't have free will, but we're predestined to heaven or damnation. And it doesn't matter what you do, if you're predestined to heaven, you're going to go there. No matter what your sins are. God's will is irresistible. You can do all the wrong you want. You're still going to end up there. And those who are damned are damned. Doesn't matter what they do. So, Shakespeare is writing at a point when um, that and would have a lot of meaning. And people will read over it. People, people, who's going to pay attention to conjunction? Terrell, go ahead. Can you speak up? Fundamental. Yeah, Fundamental. The point that I'm making is this is not subliminal, this is conscious. Shakespeare writes out of that world. In fact, let me make it even different. Let me go at it this term. You know that Shakespeare wrote both tragedies and comedies. Plato said the greatest writers will be the writers who can write both. Shakespeare's one of the few to do that. Faulkner, Homer, Shakespeare. That's it. Um, the greatest writers can write both. You know that in Shakespeare's tragedy, we've read a couple of them together, that whatever evil is um, set loose is always answered. Why? We read Boethius, because evil's a privation. It can never defeat God, ever. So artistically, artistically he could not write a play in which evil won out because he knows artistically that when an action is completed even even if people are going to die because they've done something bad let's say Lear or whatever um, justice is answered evil cannot win as a matter of fact he would have understood that evil always would have undone itself it's the nature of evil so he looked back to an age a Christian middle ages he had a profound mind he could grasp all this he would have known Boethius he would have known you know, Plato and Aristotle and the rest. Anyway, I hold on to this because it's going to apply to some of the things we're going to see here shortly. So, Shakespeare, let's let's start. I want to do a quick review of uh, of Melville, and this is going to be very, very quick and um, nefarious for those of you who haven't seen it, and I'm not going to go into this, but for those of you who have not seen the movie, you should see it. It's about yeah. possession. Father Flynn has pushed it. I mean, he's, I think he's done a really brave thing. Um, he's encouraged his whole congregation, I think, to see it. I don't know how many people have, but it's a scary movie. It's about demonic possession. I'm going to just raise two questions and then, and then I'm going to drop it. I don't want to get into a discussion. I'm just going to raise it. For those of you who haven't seen it, and those of you who have, they're just good questions to ponder. Um, the movie's about a prisoner who's possessed, and he's facing his execution, and um, a psychiatrist is called in to make a judgment on whether the prisoner is insane or not. Because by modern scientific psychiatric standards, demons don't exist, so from a From a scientific point of view, this guy is mad. He's insane. Has everybody thought this is this is absolutely crucial to understand that the premise of it is scientifically, demons don't exist. People who think, people who believe in God, people who, if you believe in demons, it means you believe in God, because there's a divine order. Um, And anybody who believes that way is mad. He's insane. That's the premise. The religious premise is that um, there is a supernatural order. God does exist and demons do exist. And a demon has possessed this guy's soul. So the psychiatrist comes in to do this interview and over the course of the interview he's blown away because this demon makes clear things to him that nobody could have known. So very slowly he he begins to doubt himself and begins to believe that demons may exist. And I'm not going to go farther than that because I don't want to give it away. But that's the that's the movie. It's just it's about possession, and it's about a modern scientific mind, a psychiatrist who has experiences with this demon that makes him doubt all of his learning. Um two I don't know how to put these critical, I guess, comments. One is one of the interesting things about the movie is that we get to know this demon pretty closely. This demon works this guy over pretty well. Um, but we don't know much about the guy he's possessed. Is it Edmund or Edward? Edward? Edward. We don't know much about him. And that, to me, artistically, is it's a limitation in my mind of the movie. Because even though we get the sense that demons gradually take over you, We don't know what that gradual means. You know, at what point did this demon take over so that when the guys, so he committed, he was a serial killer, committed to be executed for that. We don't know when he took over, but he said, the demon made me do it. So he has no will of his own, the demon has taken over. So at what point did sins turn into possession? Or, you know, we don't know. It's just left a, it's just left up in the air. I'm sorry, that's so, for its own sake and also for another reason. So that's a concern for me in the movie. And, and you know that I'm speaking artistically, because that's always a concern for me, whether the artistic form is sound theologically. I'm gonna say that again. Whether the artistic form makes sense in theological or metaphysical terms. If it doesn't, there's gonna be a crack somewhere. Homer's view of the world, to me, makes sense. Homer's an extraordinary artist. Virgil's an extraordinary artist. Shakespeare, Chaucer, all the artists we have read have been extraordinary. And they've all had sound minds. Every one of them has helped us see into the depths of things in ways other people couldn't. They, They teach us, they help us to see things. So that's a concern I have. We don't know how that possession took place. What we what we do know is he's possessed. That's a problem for me. The second is this, and it's a greater problem, and it, and I don't know how much of this I was influenced by the priest who presented it because when the priest presented it he, pres, he presented all the delays and all the stomach aches and flus and weather and people pulling out and sets falling and and all the um, near catastrophes or situations that would have brought the movie to a halt and almost one of me said it was the devil you know the devil the devil did not want this thing published here's my problem and it goes to certainly at the court and I by the way I hope none of you hears me saying don't take demons lightly because that's not what I'm saying. I hope you don't hear me saying that because I believe possession is real and demons are scary things. Um, But here's a difference between the Protestant and Catholic mind. The Protestant sets out in life, you all know this, and we saw it in Melville and Hawthorne. Um, The Protestant starts out in life believing that nature is inherently evil. It's fallen, it's depraved. The Catholic doesn't. Catholic believes that nature is good. Um, God made it good, it's good. It's wounded, it's been hurt. We call it concupiscence. Okay. One of the questions I have about this movie is, be- I can't do this without the end, giving away the ending. Are the demons in charge? Because if they're in charge, it's showing that that we live in a depraved nature, that nature itself is inherently evil. So it's a perfect dwelling place for demons a Catholic would believe in natural law that natural law is good all human law is supposed to go to um, divine law and eternal law so we get divine law through scripture here's God's, here's God's law the right the ten, that's the law of nature all positive laws should reflect that divine law and the eternal law of God because the source is the same the source is reason all laws are made by reason the ultimate reason God's so every law should reflect God's eternal nature but human laws work within the human order Christ himself made clear he was against the um, theocracies. He made, man has no place to sit. son of man has, this is not my king given to Caesar. He did not support theocracies. The danger with theocracies is they make human laws God's laws so there's no difference between them. Islam does that. Um, Plymouth in Hawthorne's several letter, they did that. Hawthorne said there's no distinction, it's just a harsh law. We make a distinction between law in nature to reflect nature and God's law. But they should dovetail. They should be continuous one with each other. Is slavery a product of God's law? Is adult or um, abortion? Human beings make bad laws all the time that do not reflect God's law and when we do when we use reason to defend the law against God we're setting up a disorder. We're creating a we're we're creating, we're creating a political a polity that's inherently flawed that will only get worse that will corrupt over time. We ended civil I mean we ended the slavery problem with the war. What's going to happen with abortion? Is everybody following? When Sophocles I gave you this example ages ago when Sophocles wrote um, Antigone. I've given you this example. Antigone wanted to bury her brother because her brother rebelled against the king and Creon against the city. Creon would not let her bury her brother within city grounds. And she made an appeal to God's law. She said the eternal law allows that. So her accusation was the king was going against her. The king will kill her, do everything bad, to, because he's king, he's a tyrant but that's a pre-Christian example of um, natural law. Sophocles Sophocles was in there, with a, um, make, she was making an appeal to an eternal law, is the basis. Plato's in Republic, I've gone back there again and again, in Plato's Republic, the great argument of Plato, one of the founding works of Western civilization is the soul has a nature rational It's got the faculties, the rational, the spirit of, the appetitive. and it's important for the rational to govern the other parts. If it's not it becomes tyrannical. we've gone through this numerous times. Is everybody following me? The rational, the spirit of, the, the capacity of anger. Anger is the rectifying virtue. It's not a bad. It rectifies. It can, it, if it turns into wrath, it's a sin. Anger is not a sin. The whole modern world has got that backwards or upside down or inside out. Anger is not a, a bad thing. When it's abused, it's a bad thing. But the intellect, spiritedness, the spirited man, and the appetites. And different people tend to follow be inclined. Dostoevsky, we're going to meet three characters. Ivan, Dmitri, Alyosha. Where are they going to fit in Plato's scheme? Okay. Plato's argument was there's a nature to the soul if a political regime ever orders itself in a way that's discordant with that soul um, it's out of tune with nature all it will do is create bad is the communist regime in accord with the human soul one of the great loves of the human soul is freedom the freedom to worship God that's fundamental to our nature fundamental to our nature if a regime does not make a place for that, is it in tune with our nature? No. Is so everybody following? So this whole notion of an order to the soul and the regime that comes out of it has been fundamental to everything we've done from the beginning, okay? Now let me stop. I want to go so in, uh, in Nefarious we've got a, a demon possessing a man and and I can't go to the end the question the movie raises for me is are the demons in charge if they are and good does not win out then I'm maintaining that is not a good piece of artistry if the demons are in charge that artist has got a bad theology it's a flawed theology because it's saying evil can win Is everybody following I won't have movies in the, like that. I mean, I watched a couple of movies like that when I was young, and they just horrified me. You know, you want your kids—you want your kids growing up seeing that demons are in charge. How do kids go to sleep at night? G. K. Chesterton, you know who, who I love, um, was responding to some of the grandmothers in England at his time because they all wanted to do away with Grimm's fairy tales. They said there was too much violence. <laughs> do away with this stuff. If you've heard any of the stories I've told you about the stories I told our grandchildren when they sinned, they never went to bed without a horror story. I mean I always had to bring in something terrifying. Chesterton said you don't want to take away violence. Kids know more about violence when they're six, nine months old. So there's something in the soul that's, you know, but you want somebody to, you want a St. George to answer that violence. Takes St. George away, you've got chaos, nihilism, terror, despair, are those the emotions you want to leave somebody with? We can't do away with violence. I mean, artistically. But I'm arguing and I have all along that a good artist will always answer it. If he's worth his artist. So, um, so watch Nefarious. But I've got a Just keep those questions in mind for those of you who haven't seen it or those of you who have. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Cheryl, let's Cheryl. Let me stop you if I can. But let, let's get out of your head for a second. The only way to answer that is go see the movie. Because so this, your theory isn't going to. You either you go see it or you don't. I know, but your question, You, you haven't You left it up here. It sounds like you left the movie with questions about the movie about. I'd still say, I mean, I've said it here openly, and I stand by it. I'm encouraging everybody to see that movie because I think it's a really important movie. So I'm saying. I think Father did a really brave thing because I think, so I would say go see it. But I'm raising questions or that are the kinds of questions that I would raise on any artwork. Because um, you know how seriously I take this stuff. So go see it. It's, and the reason I'm saying that is because we live in a bourgeois world that denies evil. I think one of the, we've lost a tragic vision, we do not have, I, and you know how important that is to me, I think without a tra- tragic vision, we don't see the world well. So I think it's really important to see a movie that deals directly with evil. And and I think it's done well, I just got a question, and I just wanted to put it out there. For those of you who haven't seen it, either don't see it because you don't want to or go see it. But I'm with Father Flynn. I mean, I would encourage everybody to see it. I think it's really important for our time. Here, I want to get to I want to get to Dostoevsky quick. I want to do a quick review of things that have been with us from the beginning that I want to keep in mind. Um, um, I'm not going to do a review of Melville or Hawthorne right now, but I'm going to make a statement in a minute that will imply a review. So I'm not. I'm going to skip that, but just hold on, okay? Remember that the first notion we have of the city, because the city is going to be really important for this novel, as it's been for every, whether it's Melville or Shakespeare. The first city, according to the Bible, remember is Enoch. Enoch is the first builder. Um, Cain committed murder. He killed his brother. So it showed a rivalry between brothers at the beginning of our history, and he was exiled, sent into exile. His son in exile was the founder of the first city. So biblically speaking, the first city is man's attempt to live without God, to show that he can be self-sufficient. And if you look, I, I, I think I've given you this example. If you look at this, um, sometimes on my, my computer, I have a thing where the, the desktop changes, you know, it goes from one thing to another, and I've gone through some of them, and they have these amazing cityscapes. It shows the shoreline or the middle of a city with skyscrapers and bridges, and I, I can't look at that without thinking, what an extraordinary thing man is. He's the most glorious thing on, who, what animal could build cities the way humans have? The cities are a testament to man's greatness. They're extraordinary works of art. And yet, we we know that lurking in the bowels of that city is depravity, decadence, crime, drugs, abortion. Go where you will. So the city was man's attempt to live without God. And it's paradoxical, it's double-edged. Um, It shows the very greatest things man can do because his self-sufficiency is so great. It also shows his horrors. Men go to war, they kill each other. In the city people become greedy, they long for power, they abuse each other. They that have the power to hurt and will do none. Virtue, virtue is rare. It always has been, it still is. Enoch was the first founder. Now remember this, we did this at the very beginning, so this is something of a review, but I'd like, I I don't go to the board as well because I just don't move as well anymore, but for those of you who remember, picture this. Picture a line for the city. If you're taking notes, draw a line. At one side put tribe, on the other side at the other end put empire. The two extremes of the polis, of political organizations, are the tribe and the empire. This is according to Aristotle who's right on. Um, It's only, he argued, it's only in the polis that the individual emerges in all of his greatness. I'm going to say that again. The individual cannot arise in the tribe because what rules the tribe is the bloodline, not an individual and his gifts. And in the tribe everybody has to do their work, whatever it is so the individual doesn't emerge in the tribe the bloodline rules the individual doesn't emerge in empires because technology rules so look at China look at the pyramids in Egypt go where you will in the ancient world in all those empires. when they built the wall of China or the pyramids did did do we ever hear an individual named who worked on that wall or that pyramid the individual does not emerge there it's The empire has all power it's absolute so the polis is that the polis is that which comes into being to help the individual and it's a mean between two extremes because that's what virtue is you can take any go through the ethics and you'll you'll find that's true of every one of our actions take any one of our actions find the extremes and then look at the mean that's the mean that's virtue that's what we're supposed to be aiming for So it's only in the polis that the individual emerges, okay, and it's because he gets help because in the in the polis what happens is what Aristotle calls a division of labor. That what happens is that um, because people learn to work together, some people do one thing, make shoes, some people make roofs, some people you know do other things, become doctors, right? But the fact that that's so means that not everybody's having to do everything, that some people will do something, some people other. That means what happens in that moment with the division of labor is freedom, free time emerges. And people are no longer bound by necessity. They have to take care of necessity, they have their lives ruled by it. They're free to do other things. And one of the things they can do with that freedom is read. They can learn to philosophize. That's Plato and Aristotle. Is that clear? When, when, when we have our grandchildren over, we always have a reading time, it's time to read. If the kids whine, if, I mean, you can imagine me, oh, fate worse than death. This is their grandfather, fate, oh, is there anything worse in the world than reading? Oh, kill me, please, before I have to read. I mean, I'm not gonna hear that. The kids are just gonna get loaded if I ever hear anybody say, do we have to read? It's the greatest gift in the world. Who wants to do it when you're young? Is everybody following? A division of labor. When that happens, people are freed from necessity. They don't have to commit, like on a tribe, where you're bound by necessity. Or, tigne, when you rise above it, but the individual disappears. So the polis, it, it, didn't, it didn't proceed, it came into being um, out of something in man that, that helped man complete himself. Because it's only in the polis where man completes himself, where he realizes all of his powers. So, what's at the center of the polis? One of the most important things? Learning. Because man was meant to learn. Are you, are you saying polis? Polis, P O L I S, polis, polis the, the, that's the Greek word for city. And city doesn't do it, but it's a slightly if you're following the argument here. Okay? everybody okay? Those were those are basic. That's why the city has been, it was important for Homer, it was important for Aeneas, Rome came into existence, remember it was important for Dante, Um, um, Florence was the first commercial republic, it was important for Shakespeare, it was important for um, Hawthorne, important for it's been crucial. Now we're going to pass into something extraordinary because we've entered a modern world those are our paradigms, the classical paradigms up through Shakespeare's time. Okay. Now, one bit of history that's important: um, Rome was the greatest city in the ancient world, and it ruled the world. You know, through the Pax Romana, when the presumption was that peace existed in the world, it didn't. But it was during that time that Christ came into the world. So that's not small. Christ came in when the world, in a sense, was unified. When Rome took a a consensus, Christ was there on that consensus. Um, Rome um, became corrupt, decayed from within, and collapsed. Constantine moved the seat of power, authority from Rome to Byzantine, north-east. Um, and in 330 and shortly after that somewhere he that city the Byzantine was called Byzantine and was renamed Constantinople. So in 330 we move from Rome to Constantinople. Constantinople becomes the major city of the world up till that time. Now if you know your history you know that from about the seventh century until 15th 16th century Islam became the dominant power in the world. They, They cut Europe in half. Not for any political, I mean, they conquered because they they wanted to conquer the infidel. They just conquered. Um, um, the one thing that uh, Muhammad wanted to do more than anything, and this is true, um, was to conquer Constantinople. That would be the sign that Islam had finally defeated this false religion. So um, Constantinople is the major city up until 1453, when um, the Turks finally capture Constantinople. The importance of that moment is this. During the Crusades, the crucial thing that united Europe was the Crusades in the effort to defeat Islam, OK? over and over and over again, they tried to defeat Islam and failed. Okay, when Islam took Constantinople in the 15th century, 1453, 15th century, it, it to some historians, lots of historians, it brought to an end the Middle Ages, because at that point, all the Christian armies, nations that had gathered together, went back defeated. So instead of being unified by a victory, they went back isolated. The unity was gone, each country looked out for itself, they were not going to gather together for a war like that again, Um, at least not in their, you know, foreseeable future. So at that moment we can say the Middle Ages end and the modern world begins and the modern state, okay? Um, With the defeat of Constantinople, the seat of power moves from Constantinople to Moscow. Peter the Great um, saw what was going on in Europe with all these enlightened ideas and he wanted to recreate Russia along enlightenment ideals. So he brings all of these people over, he starts wars with foreign countries to try to gain power, um, and he calls himself the Tsar. It's the Russian word for Caesar so he saw himself he saw Moscow this is not this is true he saw Moscow as the new Rome that was the center of power he saw himself as Caesar okay so in its beginnings um, with Peter Russia it gets transformed from old holy mother Russia it's this Christian country that's that's only partially been Westernized. This is crucial. Hold on to this, you guys, because it, the implications are going to be profound for what we do with Joseph Kessel. Old Mother Russia never had a philosophic tradition. They weren't Westernized. They didn't have what happened in the in the Mediterranean. They didn't have Plato. They didn't have Aristotle. They didn't have Boethius. That Western philosophic tradition was missing. It was a deeply Christian country, but lacking a philosophy. Those Western influences. Peter sees himself as the Tsar, the new Caesar, and he wants to modernize Russia. So what he does is begin to um, in, um, import artists, thinkers, builders, to re so to recreate Russia. Europe grew organically over centuries, slowly, by influences. Peter wanted to change Russia overnight. So right now, we with the conquest of Constantinople, we're leaving a Christian Middle Ages and we've entered an entirely new world that's based on reason. All the Enlightenment thinkers are the models. So a Christian Russia um, is um, in the grips of all these Enlightenment thinkers, these scientific thinkers. Um, The most important at that time would have been um, Rousseau, Hobbes, and Locke. They are the major social contract theorists. So the basis of modern f- political thought is social contract. It's not it's not Plato, it's not Aristotle, it's not the polis, it's the rational regime. The social contract is this principle. We're all in a state of war. We're all going to kill each other by nature. Our, we're inherently banned. We all live in fear and pride. The only way we can stop from killing each other is if we agree to compromise. I will, I won't do this if you don't do this. So they enter into a contract, social contract, giving power to the government in order to avoid killing each other. That's the basis theory of the modern world, the social contract theory. Okay? I won't do this if you don't. So the basis is compromise. But to carry this off, it means giving the state almost absolute power. So the individual turns over power to the state in order to be protected. Okay. So, it, and it's during this time that all these Enlightenment ideas are taking hold. America has the American Revolution, France has the French Revolution, and just at the time that Dostoevsky's writing, 1848, there are revolutions everywhere in Europe. Europe right now is being torn apart and there are all these new Republican ideas. They want to all overthrow monarchies, all of them, and almost all of them lose. But there are revolutions everywhere. Dostoevsky even, even mentions the one in Paris. It's in the, it's in the uh, narrative. Um, and Dostoevsky himself was um, suspected of being involved in these revolutionary activities. He was in prison, he was going to be executed because the government is taking measures to, to curtail all this revolutionary activity. So that's the context when Dostoevsky's writing. Old Mother Russia is being radically, artificially, transformed. Suddenly. Not gradually, over time. Okay? That's the context for Brothers Karamazov. Let me stop. Um, one more thing, because I want this to be a part of our review. Um, we just got through reading Hawthorne, Melville, Scarlet Letter, and Wimby Dick. They're the two greatest American works during the 19th century, and both of them, I think, are prophetic. You know my reading of them. And both of them are dealing with um, what are flawed Protestant theologies. Both of them pretty serious. Melville is a great storyteller. I think Dostoevsky is a better storyteller. I don't know where you are in your reading, but if you're reading, I'm assuming you'll find it easier to read. It's more enjoyable, it's more readable, it's more down-to-earth. Dostoevsky is dealing with ordinary people everywhere. Melville is dealing with allegorical types. A captain, first mates, mates, harpooners, you know, the crew, Dostoevsky's got an allegorical element to his work, but he's telling stories of everybody. But here's the thing I want to emphasize. In, um, in Dostoevsky, the, all the major characters are involved in romantic relationships or marriages. You know that from the beginning. Fyodor's had a couple of marriages and different kids by those marriages. Alyosha's going to be in a romantic relationship. It's going to be very painful. Dimitri is going to be in a romantic. Yvonne's going to be a romantic. It's going, to, it's going to be lacerating. Every one of them is going to be in a romantic relationship, and it's going to be very painful. In Hawthorne, there was no romantic relationship. It was implied. It wasn't until the very end of Scarlet Letter that, ha- that Dimsdale and um, Hester come together. And they come together briefly to flee, and they never do, and Del- Dimsdale dies. We do not see a romantic relationship active at all. It's buried. It's hidden. Romantic relationships in Moby Dick don't exist. You can't go to Dostoevsky